You're listening to Elevate the Hunt, the podcast that takes you deeper into the issues surrounding our lifestyle and passion for hunting. I'm Everett Headley, and I'll be your host. Welcome back to another episode of Elevate the Hunt. This time, I sit down with Perks Policy Director, Hannah Downey. She is based in Bozeman, Montana at the Property and Environment Research Center, where they create innovative conservation solutions through incentives. Hannah and I discuss using those incentives in cooperative conservation to benefit wildlife and land stewards. We go just a step further to see how sportsman groups help or hinder that process as well. I think what you'll hear today will help you better understand the plight, difficulties, and concerns of those who spend every day on the land and how working together forges stronger and longer-lasting solutions. On Elevate the Hunt, we bring you issues that aren't often talked about in the hunting community. I think this is one of those. You can find more on our website and Instagram, and don't forget to give some stars when you finish listing. Thanks so much. Well, I'm sitting down with Hannah Downey today. She's in Bozeman, her offices. You're actually my second Perk fellow to be on the podcast. I really like what you guys do there, so I'm happy to have you today, Hannah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Usually when we do a podcast, we'll do a little bit of pre-interview before we start recording just to get on page. (laughs) And many times you and I are both like, we should write that down. We should ask that question or we should have recorded that. So hopefully we can get all of that in today. I think this is going to be a really good conversation. I'm really looking forward to it. Kind of the big theme is this idea of cooperative conservation. And you were at the Montana Outfitters and Guides Association Conference. We were both there. This was, what, a month ago or so back in January. You had ideas that you were really able to express in in a setting that, given our current climate and that audience, some might have found really adversarial to their own thoughts. And yet you were able to give it to them in a way that they could think on it, chew on it. And so... I said, I really need to have you on the podcast to talk about this idea of cooperative conservation. So are you ready to go today? I am. I am. Let's start here. So you you grew up in the Midwest, got out here to Montana, and then met and fell in love with your husband, right? That is correct. And you've been here for, for how long now? I've been here for about 12 years. So a long time. But I should say before that, I was so lucky to grow up spending my summers backpacking out here, working on a ranch in southwestern Montana through high school summers, being a backpacking guide in the Beartooths in college. It's Montana just has the most special place in my heart before I was able to make the full move. What were you doing on the ranch? Were you bucking bales and moving cows and pipe or... Well, I should say I was like 16 years old, did not grow up on a ranch. So I did whatever they told me to do, which ranged from cooking breakfast to fixing fences, to mowing lawns, to riding horses. I was eager for all of it. I loved it. So if I gave you a pair of fencing pliers, you would know what to do with those or even what they are. I would know what they are. You ever seen those like on a TV show and the actor has a pair of fencing pliers in their hand and they have no idea what to do with them? It is always really entertaining to watch how uh, Western culture is portrayed. Do you follow Yellowstone at all? I do. I do. We we actually at Perk have done some really fun work looking at the show Yellowstone and 
kind of myth busting for what is it actually like in the West. So everything from fence in, fence out policy to water rights, to access, to brucellosis. It's been really fun to actually kind of leverage the interest that that show has with our policy research and kind of expertise on natural resource economics in the West. So it's been a really fun show to figure out, all right, this is overly dramatized, but it's a fun plug to talk about the stuff we want to talk about. Well, you guys did great work with the article you put out last summer. I was really asking because I wanted to know if your experience on your ranch, did you have a Rip or a John Dutton kind of presence? No, we really didn't, which was amazing. But maybe it could have also been that I was a high schooler in the absolute bottom of the totem pole. So I was not involved in any of the politics of the ranch, but everyone was nice to me. And everyone who started the summer made it to the end of the summer. So a little less drama. Would you say you were more like, uh, is it Jesse, the wannabe cowboy rodeo guy that goes down to Texas and becomes a real cowboy? Is that kind of what your transformation was like? Well, I definitely started as the nice Midwestern high school girl. So my foray into uh, the ranch world was a little different, but definitely I had I had no clue what I was doing up front and everyone was so patient and kind to me and just knew that I love the Western landscape. I love horses and it worked out great. Did you have a moment where you thought, nah, Montana, I should go back home. This is not for me. Probably when I got the old pickup truck stuck on some back road and had to figure it out for myself, that was when I really realized I am not in uh, Minnesota anymore. Now is the time that I, I suck it up and figure it out and become a little bit more resourceful, which I think is a pretty good lesson for most 16-year-olds to learn. Oh, for sure. And, you know, given our current 16-year-old crop, um, they might need a little bit of tough love like that. So we get them some jobs. Summer yeah, range. give most 16-year-olds a really fidgety old manual pickup truck and send them across the across the ranch with no cell service and ask them to figure it out. And there will be some great moments of frustration and hopefully a little bit of learning. Well, going back to that Yellowstone article, I'm definitely going to make sure that's in the show notes. People need to read that. But I think you guys need to get that out there just a little bit more because I live in the Bitterroot where they film half of the Yellowstone TV show and everything else. And I see them all the time. And what follows them are the tourists, right? I can't tell you the number of times now where you've either been at a show and people find out I'm from Montana. And the next question is, is have you seen Yellowstone? (laughs) And I have to tell them, yeah, I have. It's part, you know, they film it in my backyard. It's, it's, (laughs) you know, it's a little bit of an inconvenience to me, but then you get everybody who moves to Montana because they want to be rip or they want to see, you know, and experience the life we have. And okay. But you know, at some point we got to put out the, uh, the full sign, right? I mean, it's got to happen. I struggle with this because I was totally, I think about how I found Montana and how I ended up here. And so I have to like do a little bit of self-reflecting back. Um, So it's hard for me to cast judgment on other people with some of this, but absolutely the amount of people in Bozeman that you'll see wearing their shirt with a little Yellowstone logo on it or walking around in their brand new cowboy boots It's a little bit entertaining. At the end of the day, I do have to remind myself that of all of the things and places that people could spend their time and money on, this is what they choose. It it has to give me a little bit of hope that you could be playing video games or in a city or something, and this is still what people chose to do for their vacation. So I'm with you. Maybe it's just that we got to find better ways to educate folks on kind of the culture or, or the expectations of how to treat people when you come and visit. 
Well, I definitely think that we're both doing that and we're both in the same group, right? And I mean, we can't put out a full sign. <laughs> you know, you do, I, I think about, you know, one of the hallmarks of knowing you're getting older in life is saying things like, well, it used to be this way and I'm not even 40 yet. And I'm saying things like, it didn't used to be this way. And I mean, just even a few years ago here in the Bitterroot, it's just really taken off. Well, on that, I have to tell you, the greatest line I've heard on this actually came from Senator Danes was doing a roundtable here in Bozeman with the Western Caucus last summer. And he had a great line of, he said, welcome everyone to Bozeman, the place where the people who moved here after watching a river run through it are now getting mad at the people who moved here after watching Yellowstone. And if that doesn't capture it, it, I don't know what does. That is really poignant. And I don't know if you saw the news today, but uh, Twitter suspended the senator. Did, did I see did this? see that. I did see that. And then I actually saw a few other friends um, when people kind of involved in Montana politics and, and hunting policy changed their profile pictures on Twitter in solidarity. And subsequently, some of them were removed as well. It was just crazy. You know, I thought about doing that. I don't use my Twitter account for for a whole lot. and and. And I thought about just putting my antelope pictures up there too. Yeah, solidarity, right? I mean, it was a really nice buck. His wife had killed. It was a great shot. I teach people how to take uh, good hero shots, you know, kind of minimize the blood, get the weapon out of there, make the animal the focus, right? And I mean, everything about his picture was fantastic. And I'm not sure what Elon was thinking there, but I, I hear that it's not going to be very long and that'll be restored. So good for the same. Exactly. Tell me about your husband and what it's like having dinner conversations with him. This was something that came up where we as sportsmen have a lot of different interests. And even between you and your husband, you have some very, uh, let's say, heated discussions around the dinner table. And yet you guys are still happily married. What what goes on at the dinner table at the Downey House? Yeah, uh, this is a great question. And, and one of my favorite kind of stories to actually tell when discussing the range of sportsman interests and ultimately just the passion that sportsmen and women have for wildlife and conservation and the future of hunting and fishing. Um, so I was introduced to hunting largely through my husband. We met in college. We've been together ever since. He is a proud hunter, grew up doing it with his family, uh, both archery and rifle. There's nothing he loves more than chasing mule deer around Montana and Idaho. And so with all this and with, with my work at Perk and doing a lot of work kind of on wildlife management and especially the intersection of kind of private lands and public wildlife interests, he and I subsequently have a lot of conversations at the dinner table about what is the right future of wildlife management policy in Montana and across the West and the United States as a whole? Uh, and we definitely find some areas we disagree, uh, largely related to access and private lands and hunting tag allocations and getting really into the weeds. And so I often say, like, it's actually really cool. How awesome is it that at my dinner table is where I get to hash out these conversations and learn more about a different side of the issue we darn all was going to end up agreeing, and we say it's the most heated conversations uh, either of us have in our marriage, but it's pretty fun, and it is a testament to the fact that people can come to the table, and if you're willing to come in good faith and try and operate, like there can be a lot of agreement and also still disagreement, but you can ha try and hash that out. Where do you guys find common ground together? Yeah, I would say some of the areas where we really do agree are just the 
basis of passion for wildlife conservation and the importance of habitat conservation, public lands habitat in particular. Uh, one of my biggest priorities and an area where we do agree is how can we provide really good public habitat so that you're able to hopefully distribute some of the wildlife off private lands and promote more on, on public lands, starting with the distribution question. Rather than just saying we want to bring down total wildlife numbers, it's how can we help distribute wildlife across the landscape in a way that's healthy for wildlife and the landscape. Uh, we do also agree on the cost to private lands and a lot of the benefits that private landowners provide to wildlife. A really prominent example just here in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem where I am, that for elk winter habitat, about 80% of that is on private lands. So we're seeing this huge contribution from private lands to just the existence of these migration corridors and the well-being of these wildlife through the winters. A lot of the disagreement then comes from, well, how do we access those animals? What is the role of a, a public sportsman versus the private landowner in that? What's the balance of tag allocations? A lot more of the, the details, but I think we share a really common understanding of at least what some of the problems and challenges are and the goal of just longstanding conservation of wildlife and the sporting heritage. What do you guys do when the conversation gets really heated? A little time out, take a pause. This is the beautiful part of disagreeing with someone you love is that you know when the other person is kind of reaching a heated point. And so we do a pretty good job of bringing it back and saying like, you know what, I don't think we're going to solve this issue over dinner tonight. Um, and there's a reason that people hire lobbyists and have organized groups and have battled these things out in regulations and legislation for decades. Uh, so like, we might not be able to solve that right now, but let's maybe bring it back to where is something that we agree on um, and can kind of at least leave the dinner table okay with each other. But it's, it's fun and challenging. I'm reminded of this scene in again in Yellowstone. It's Beth and Rip having a little interaction, and she says something like, "I'm not going to repeat on my podcast." <laughs> and then she says, "But I love you, right?" And she says it again. He says, "Okay, I'll see you at home." And I guess you just have to accept a certain amount of uh, crazy. Hopefully, it doesn't get to like Beth's <laughs> level. Right? I hope not. <laughs> I love that you have these conversations though with your husband, and and that you guys are able to have you know disagreement without throwing dishes at each other or sleeping in separate bedrooms or whatever. Are there Areas where you guys have changed each other's thoughts or how you think about a, uh, a circumstance or a situation? That's a really great question. I would say one of the things that he has really opened my mind to is bigger questions about distribution of wildlife. So oftentimes I think one of the biggest challenges is you hear from private landowners, you know, all of the elk or mule deer or whatever it is, is finding its home on my ranch. And that comes with a real cost. And I want to be really clear about that, right? We're looking at foregone forage, competing with livestock for forage. And at a time and day when hay prices are really high, that's a really big cost, purely financial. Um, you know, fences getting knocked down, disease spread, risk of brucellosis in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, just all these kind of competing costs on landowners. And so, the landowner can come and say, I have way too many elk on my property. And meanwhile, you can have the public land hunter saying, I was out all season and I didn't see a single like good bull. And I hiked my butt off and put in all these miles and tried so many different spots and didn't, didn't see wildlife. And so there's kind of this discrepancy of we have too many wildlife in some places and not enough in other places. And what are the different interests there? And so I think 
in our conversations, we've really helped expand the other's knowledge of the challenges that each side is facing. And I'll say, I kind of bring more of the private lands perspective of there's a public wildlife resource that is imposing costs on a private landowner. He comes at it a lot from the public sportsman perspective of sportsmen have been essential in bringing back these species. And we have these hunting policies. Where's the interaction here? So I think that's something we've both had to learn a lot more about. Um, I'll also say it's forced us to learn a lot more about what are the various programs that are out there and what works in one watershed or for one specific landowner might not work for everyone. What works for one kind of interest of a sportsman isn't for everyone, right? That even the discrepancy between you have the folks like my husband who are willing to put in 20 mile days in the middle of nowhere, camping out for weeks on end, and you have the road hunters. And understanding that there's sort of these spectrums within both the sportsman and landowner community, and we have to acknowledge that nuance if we want to move forward on these pieces. So I think those are the areas where we've really been able to expand each other's knowledge and contribute to a broader understanding of the issue. Well, before we dive into the actual issues and, and perspectives from a, a landowner in, in finding cooperative conservation models, I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were from a private property focused group and, and you're working with landowners. Is there a, an overwhelming sense that sportsman groups are entitled or feel that way or try to wave a big stick to get to kind of what they want or find and accomplish their own achievements and goals? That's a really good question. And I would say yes. Um, and I want to add a little bit more context to that answer. And first recognize that there's a wide range of sportsmen and sportsmen's groups out there and not all, and they do not operate under the same principles or even just kind of the same outlooks on a lot of things. And their constituencies and members are very, very different. I mentioned earlier, you know, you have some of the the road hunters or the folks who are maybe getting older or less mobile or for whatever reason it is, they're just looking to put a cow elk or a doe in the freezer for the winter. You also have the the sportsmen who are very much more the willing to put in miles. They Their goal is a trophy. And there's a difference there. And, and groups can represent those things in different ways. Um, so there are a lot of sportsmen's groups who I have actually been really encouraged in recent years coming to the table, trying to say, we recognize that this public resource that we're really interested in is imposing some of these costs on your private lands. How can we work that out? How can we help alleviate some of those costs? How can we make wildlife more of an asset? But then you will also have some of the farther end of the spectrum groups who are pretty abrasive and some of their messaging is really aggressive in labeling landowners as the problem and saying, well, if there's elk on your property and it's causing a problem, then what you need to do is open the gates and let all of the public on. To which a lot of landowners will say, well, I have an elk problem. I open my gates, sportsmen come on, they're accidentally leaving gates open, they're driving where they shouldn't be, I'm finding garbage, whatever it might be. So now I have an elk and a people problem. And so I think that is where, unfortunately, sort of that vocal minority is influencing how a lot of landowners think about sportsmen as a whole. So many sportsmen are really good, genuine people operating with really sound ethics and trying to self-police. But the problem is all it takes is one bad apple to really start the conversation 
in a community, right? You can have small town rural Montanans where suddenly at the bar on Friday night, the topic of conversation is, I had a hunter come on my property and he couldn't tell the difference between an elk and a deer and a cow and drove off road and left this gate open and now my cows are out. And that one story is enough to ruin it for a lot of people. And so I definitely don't want to say the sporting community is all that way, but unfortunately all it takes is one bad example to kind of ruin it for a lot of people. You know, in my work, I I find talking with landowners that they do feel that the sportsman community is has set themselves up against private landowners and and that they wave around big sticks and want to force upon landowners either certain policies or ideas so that they can get to what they ultimately want, which is to hunt. And it leaves landowners feeling really raw, used and and underappreciated. And I got to tell them, you know, that's not all sportsmen. Mm-hmm. I'm a sportsman myself and uh, really value my relationships with landowners. I value the I mean, there's so much there. And I mean, we were talking about Justin Iverson earlier in the podcast I did with him. He does a great job of representing a, a really thoughtful and a really cooperative landowner who uses public hunting as a, a management and strategy tool within his own ranch. And it's a legacy ranch. So there's a lot there going on for him that he has invested in. And the next generation is, is uh, right on his heels to come in. He's not quite to retirement age. Uh, I don't think, Justin, maybe you call me later. Anyway, he presents, though, this argument that it's hard to hear and figure out as a landowner who is who and what group is is saying this and what group is, is saying this. And really made me start to think a little bit more about what groups do I associate with and how do they present themselves? One of the words that has been used is, are they polarizing or are they finding solutions? And I think that's really important, right? Because we we need to find the common ground and then we can focus on that and build off that to find ways to kind of mitigate some of the differences that we do have. But I think it's so important that as sportsmen, we recognize we, by virtue of whoever we're associating with, we're presenting a front to to landowners and potentially access and, and habitat providers that is really something that needs to be considered. I, I asked the question because not that I, I'm looking for you to name names or anything like that, but I, I think it's it's one of these things that we give our 25 bucks a year, we get a magazine and okay, we think we're doing our part for conservation. Well, okay, maybe we think a little bit more critical about what we're doing and how we're doing it and then find ways that we can start to build those relationships. And, and I think that's really important. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with you. And and my mind immediately goes to some examples of groups that are really trying to do good things and I think are really actively working to repair some of those relationships and try to distinguish themselves. An example that immediately comes to mind is Perk, where I just worked with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation to launch a brucellosis compensation fund in Paradise Valley. And we worked with other groups, including like Greater Yellowstone Coalition, Cordova, um, and some other partners. But together, we were able to raise a really significant pot of money um, of all kind of our private dollars saying, we are all interested in the future of elk management and the conservation of migration corridors in Paradise Valley. Brucellosis is a real risk there, a disease that can transmit from um, elk to cattle and cause them to lose their young. And so what we said is, this is a huge risk and a huge financial cost. It's, it's a rare risk, but a very serious one when it does happen. Um, 
for, for the ranchers. They have to go into quarantine, do all of this testing. It's really expensive. And so what we said is, as groups who are interested in this, and we want to put some money towards this, where if if you are a landowner engaged in some basic conservation practices, um, we are willing to help front the cost for if your herd does contract brucellosis. And that was a really amazing example to me where we were able to come together and put our money where our mouths are. Can you tell me why brucellosis is a big deal for ranchers? Yeah, great question. Um, it's It's one of those diseases where it's Again, fairly rare, um, but if it does spread from elk to cattle, it causes the cows to ab- abort their young, um, and it can be really detrimental. It's It can spread quite easily, so there's a fear of it kind of taking out entire herds. And so if your herd does get brucellosis, you have to go through a whole quarantine process, work with the state on um, testing and making sure your herd is clean. It basically disrupts your entire livestock operation. Um, And so again, it's pretty rare, maybe one every three years, there was a recent case in the Madison Valley. Um, It's largely focused around the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. So it doesn't apply to all parts of Montana or even all of the West, but it is, it's just a huge risk and something that when we talk to landowners and we say, what are some of your concerns about the presence of elk here? Brucellosis is always what they say keeps them up at night. And when a ranch tests positive for for brucellosis, how devastating is that to their operations? It can be really devastating. I mean, we can, we're talking about up to like hundreds of thousands of dollars or more um, can depend on the size of the operation and, and a lot of factors there. And I'm, I'm definitely not kind of the biologist expert on all of this, but it can be absolutely devastating and disrupting. And for herds where ranchers have been working for years or even generations on building the genetics of their herd, kind of cultivating temperaments, all of these things, it can just be truly devastating. And as I understand it, if if they test positive, there's the possibility that that whole herd could be put down. And now you've lost everything that you've worked for, for as you said, for generations. Is that kind of what the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and PERC that fund, is that what that fund is for? Yeah. So our fund is really set up to try and offset those costs. I mean, ideally we aren't looking at a whole herd having to be uh, taken out, largely looking at quarantine costs um, and testing costs and getting things under control. But absolutely. I mean, it's it'll disrupt your entire operation, if not totally shut it down. Again, it's, it's not very common. I don't want to make this sound like it's something that happens every day to ranchers. Um, it is rare, but it's can be absolutely devastating. Well, I love the approach because it's incentive-based, right? And this is something that is not new to wildlife management. One of the big things that comes to mind is CRP and how CRP works. And I'm going to let you tell us a little bit more about that in just a moment. But it's it's a way that we can give landowners an opportunity to not only continue to make a living and steward the land as they are, but we can find a wildlife benefit to it at the same time. And so there's this win-win-win, right, for sportsmen, landowners, and, and wildlife. And, and I love these approaches. You know, the the old adage of carrot versus stick, right? And I love finding ways where we can use the carrot to get people to do things. This is how we did it when we were kids, right? Your parents gave you a quarter for taking out the trash or shining the car, stuff like that. And we do this today with our jobs where we give you time, we get money in return, right? And so... The carrot works in a lot of different ways, and, and CRP is a great way to do that. Is there a way? Well, look, why don't you just go ahead and, and, and run us through CRP and any other uh, current 
programs out there that are like that. Yeah. So that's, that's a great, a great point. And I think as we look at incentive programs, one of the things I am pretty encouraged by um, in recent years, like past decade, and even moving forward is this, there is this recognition both amongst like even some government agencies, private groups, all of these things that the carrot can work a lot better than the stick. How do we look to incentives to promote doing good things uh, rather than just regulations and, and punishment. And so CRP, which you mentioned, the Conservation Reserve Program, uh, a farm bill program, and there's this whole list of potential uh, acronyms and various conservation programs that fall under the conservation title of the farm bill, which is up for renewal this year. Um, but there are all of these programs that look to say, what are ways that we can maybe financially compensate landowners for leaving a field fallow or for not growing crops and there's and, and engaging in some more of these conservation oriented approaches with their private open agricultural lands. Um, to be honest, I'm a lot more familiar with some of these private incentive programs. And I think a lot of conservation sportsmen's types groups are doing a lot of good things privately to create these sort of incentive programs. And they're able to operate at a pretty local scale. Um, I mentioned the Bruce Lewis's compensation fund, Perk did. We also have done an elk occupancy agreement, where again, we worked with a rancher to say, you're providing this incredible winter range habitat for these elk as they migrate out of Yellowstone Park and spend the winter on your private ranch. This is coming at a cost to you and your cattle operation. Can we actually pay you to lease like 500 acres to say, great, we're going to set this aside as winter range for elk um, and use an incentive approach to recognize the, the value of those elk, even though it is necessarily a cost to the lander. So again, trying to make that cost into more of an asset or a liability into more of an asset. Um, there are a ton of other really cool compensation programs, both for game species, monarch butterflies, and even a lot of other like endangered species and predators, compensation programs, payment for presence. I could go on and on and would love to share examples as we go on and continue this conversation. But there's a lot of really cool approaches out there where people are realizing um, sort of this wildlife value and saying, how can we compensate for the impact of those wildlife on, on a landscape? Can I ask then, that is, I want to make sure I frame this question right. So the African model of wildlife conservation is essentially, if it pays, it stays. Mm -hmm. And the North American model is a little different in that there is an intrinsic value that we must protect it. And so regardless of its value, we are going to protect anything. And we're going to protect everything at, at all costs. I might be overstating it a little bit, but there's, there's a real difference there between the model. And so what you're kind of saying is that we need to find ways to make it pay for landowners. And if we do that, landowners will be much more willing to cooperate with us. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I think that is a pretty fair statement. And I definitely think looking at the North American model um, and how it, that was kind of developed in a time where where species were at serious risk of going extinct, we were seeing drastically low, especially game species numbers. Now we've come back to this incredible spot where just total numbers wise, and again, recognizing that total numbers is different than the distribution of those numbers. But from a numbers perspective, we've kind of come to a point of abundance. And that's really incredible to see what has been accomplished uh, in just recent decades, last century. 
And so with all of that, though, it does come these questions of now we do have some of these costs on private lands. And as we're looking at distribution, as we're looking at threats of development and just the importance of open space in all of this, how do those factors all play together? And so part of it, it's not even necessarily how do we make these things financially viable, but it can be how do we remove some of the regulatory burdens so that we're able to have wildlife um, kind of exist and not be viewed as this total burden for species, uh, for landowners, excuse me. And this maybe gets into some of the conversation on Endangered Species Act. I was just going there. <laughs> Perfect. I was just thinking about, you said regulatory burden, and I thought immediately ESA. And, you know, in Montana, we have dealt with the the gray wolf, right, forever. Uh, it seems like to me as a kid, I, I, I know as a kid, they were in the 90s. They were in my hunting area as one of the first packs. And so I've, I've dealt with wolves my whole life, essentially. And now we're getting to the ESA delisting or asking for, what, the 15 millionth time to delist the grizzly. We, we've got this going on here in Montana, given that to Fish and Wildlife Services. But regulatory burden is a real big deal. And, and it makes me wonder, with what's going on with the, with the wolf and now with the grizzly bear, if we go to landowners again and say, we've got another crisis environmental concern we need your help with but we're going to make sure that there's regulatory burden attached to it via the ESA or whatever how likely are they going to say yeah come on my place do what you need to do and save the you know spotted who's it or whatever i don't think i don't see a lot of light there do you right i think this is again where it comes to what are we incentivizing with landowners? And and I will say USDA Undersecretary Robert Bonney had a great line that I use all the time. And he said, we need to do conservation with, not to landowners. And it was just very telling to me of like, how can we structure these conservation priorities in a way where we're working with landowners and not necessarily punishing them for the presence of species? And it's spot on talking about the grizzly bear, the wolf, another big one in Montana right now is the Arctic grayling. And just thinking about what are the implications that can be had for a landowner. If you're looking at the presence of this species, which you could normally be okay with if you're able to have some management pieces, able to um, proactively address how that species interacts with your, your business and your operation. But if you're told like, actually, we don't think you can graze here anymore, or maybe you can't build your barn there or whatever it might be. Suddenly you're taking the species and making it a liability to the landowner. There was this really great quote from a former Trout Unlimited uh, director talking about the Arctic railing where he said, I'm not sure an Endangered Species Act listing buys anything except for a lot of heartburn and a bunch of pissed off people. And that to me was the exact case where we're trying to do conservation to people rather than with them. There are so many ways to say, how can we make this species an asset for you? How can we either compensate you for this or find ways to provide some regulatory relief um, so you're able to continue your operation while providing this really important habitat? And that's where we need to be moving towards rather than just kind of the strict control methods of how you can use your property. Oh, I mean, that's all great stuff, right? And, and I want to throw the quote in by, you know, father of all wildlife conservation, right? Aldo Leopold and said something to the effect of, you know, we need to reward landowners who conserve wildlife and wild places. And, and that's ultimately what's going to give us the success that we need. And he said that, I don't know what, near 100 years ago, right? So this isn't a new idea. 
but I, I do feel like it's it's being it needs to be rediscovered, right? Especially within sportsmen's groups and, and the focuses that we have. And I think that we understand, you know, eighty percent of the wildlife is on private land. We that private landowners support wildlife year round. That there's a lot of fringe benefits for what they do, and we could talk about grazing and how that's an improvement on on landscapes. We can talk about uh, water conservation, like you were just mentioning with the big hole and, and, and grayling, and how they have come together to do things. Uh, and and these are a lot of you know the landowners listening to this are like yeah preach Everett this is what we do right. But these are things that are largely just bypassed by sportsmen because they're not they're not really on our radar. We're just reaping the benefits of being able to go and, and hunt and fish in these places. And so it makes me think a little bit. Okay, how do we how do we begin to present this to sportsmen in a way that's more palatable to them? Do you have ideas on that? That is a really good one and an area where I am a little bit encouraged by more of the sportsman community getting involved in broader questions about habitat, non-game species, greater ecosystem health, right? And not just how can I go harvest this specific species that I want on my wall or in my freezer. And so those conversations are really encouraging to me. I think a big part of this is, again, how can we get kind of the landowner community and the sportsman's community to the table to better understand the challenges that each of them are facing? And part of this is, as I was preparing for this conversation, I was thinking a lot about, well, what can what opportunities are out there for the sportsman community? And I was thinking of one is to really start investing on those private lands. Um, are there ways to provide financial resources or manpower, or whatever it might be, to help with um, conservation on private lands? The other side is looking at policies and not just engaging on like immediate sportsman concerns regarding hunting and fishing regulations or policies but also looking at the broader habitat opportunities. Can sportsmen look at a policy and say, how is this going to interact with the landowner community that's providing a lot of this habitat? Are there ways for us to stand up and start getting involved in more of those conversations and bringing some of that nuance or that private land perspective to our conversations? And again, some groups are doing an amazing job of this already, and I'm really hopeful that the conversation will continue to go that way. You know, we've talked a little bit about ESCA and how it decentivizes landowner cooperation. Do you feel like there's going to be any movement in the near future, either with our current Secretary of Interior, Fish Wildlife Services, or even uh, the president at that level? Is there going to be any reform or are we just kind of at loggerheads? It is what it is. That's a really complicated question. Um, I think there might be parts of it or specific species where we could see some good movement towards cooperation. Um, there's also some rulemaking proposals and things related to the Endangered Species Act that that do have me a little concerned. I guess maybe starting off on all of this, one of the really big examples that highlights some of the controversy over the Endangered Species Act for me is the story of the red cockaded woodpecker. And we had some researchers at PERC look at when the woodpecker was listed um, under the Endangered Species Act, what did that mean for landowner behavior? particularly for private timber owners. Um, and so the woodpecker found its home in a lot of this older growth timber um, that historically was provided by a lot of these private timberlands. You know, the, the owner would allow the trees to grow old. They would harvest them and turn them then into subsequent timber products, but they would rotate how all of this harvest was done and it was providing 
really solid habitat for the woodpecker. The challenge then came when the woodpecker was listed. And suddenly landowners were looking at it and saying, oh my goodness, if the woodpecker is found in my timber stands, suddenly my timber stands are habitat for this woodpecker and I won't be able to cut them down. And that's going to threaten my bottom line uh, as as a business. And I'm either going to have to sell for development or do something else with the landscape and go out of business. So what we found was actually these timber owners, what they would do is they started harvesting their timber earlier. They said, if I grow my trees until they're, you know, I can't remember the exact number, but X number of years old, while they're still younger, the woodpeckers won't have moved in yet and I'll be able to harvest them. It won't be woodpecker habitat. I won't be regulated. I can still make some profit and keep my operation going. Um, Whereas if I let the timber continue to grow, it becomes woodpecker habitat and then I can't do anything with it. So what, in effect, the Endangered Species Act listing actually did was take all of this habitat that could have been great for the woodpecker, but created the exact wrong incentive. Suddenly the incentive was, I need to harvest this timber before the woodpecker gets there. And so in effect, we destroyed a lot of the habitat. And a lot of that comes back to thinking through, what are the signals being sent to the landowners who are providing this habitat? What does it actually mean? So we're actually in the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act. And I know there's going to be a lot of conversations happening um, at both state and federal legislative levels within U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service on what does all of that mean. And I am hopeful that we can at least take a look and start thinking through what are the incentives for the landowners how are these regulations actually translating on the ground so that we can do some better work there? I think it's going to have to probably be at a species by species level, just given current political realities. But hopefully we can, again, start to change the culture, have those conversations, elevate the issue and start moving the needle. You know, I just I was Googling while you're talking about this um, red cockaded woodpecker mm-hmm. and on the Wikipedia page, which is what just came up. One of the big bullet points is intentional habitat destruction by landowners. Mm-hmm. And and that seems completely antithetical to what the ESA's purpose was, Correct. right? And and yet you totally get why they do it. On the other side, you don't want them to do it because you want to save species. And I think as sportsmen, we want we want to make sure that all species are beneficiaries of of the North American model. Even if we don't hunt them, at least we should be. I think that makes us a more well-rounded naturalist sportsman. But it does seem like there's the more regulatory burden that we have from the federal government, the less willingness and maybe even the less cooperation we we actually have on the ground. Do you feel like you, you're able to do something in the private sector that is kind of like an underground ESA where – you can go talk to these landowners and say, listen, if you let it grow a little bit more, give them the habitat. In this case, is, you know, explicitly, you know, it could be something else. Do you have that capability where you're able to insert yourself and, and, and have an impact like that? But it, it kind of does what the ESA was supposed to do, but you're actually doing it from your, your angle. Maybe I'm asking this question really weird. No, I, I think you're right. Basically getting at how can private groups or people who are really interested in the habitat conservation kind of take some of this upon themselves to get the incentives right? I think there's absolutely room for that. Um, a few examples that maybe stand out are some of the predator compensation models. Um, looking at when wolves were reintroduced in Montana, they were still 
federally protected. Now Montana is unique in that our, our wolf population is, is not listed under the Endangered Species Act. But uh, back in the 90s, when they were in early 2000s, there was this huge controversy over wolves are a protected predator species. What are the impacts on livestock and their killing cows? And we saw actually started by defenders of wildlife and subsequently the model has been successful and picked up and there's always room for improvement, but in general, successful. The idea that as wolf advocates, how can we privately raise money and defenders of wildlife did this by selling wolf posters and, and things like that. But they started their own compensation model to recognize these wolves that are federally protected, that we advocated for being on this landscape are causing problems for your operation. They're relying on your cattle for food, your rangeland for habitat, these sorts of things, and started a compensation model to hopefully at least alleviate some of that financial cost. Again, it wasn't perfect, um, but we did see private groups step in. And I think we're still seeing some examples like that, again, at a more local level, um, playing through. So there is some opportunity there. Um, One of the challenges, though, I will raise is looking at, there are some landowners who will say, I'm willing to reintroduce this species or foster um, a population of this endangered or threatened listed species on my property. The challenge though, is then they consider their relationship with their neighbors and they say, oh great, well, it's one thing if I introduce this trout species kind of in my spring creeks, but what if I'm successful? What if the whole point of this is actually wildly successful and the population grows and the trout swim upstream or downstream or the black-footed ferret or whatever the species might be, the population takes off and now they're on my neighbor's property and now my neighbor's being regulated and they never signed up for this. So we see again sort of those community ties and challenges and people have testified before Congress on this and saying, I'm willing to bear the cost myself but I'm not willing to impose that cost on my neighbors if my experiment is successful. And those are some of the challenges I think we really need to break through. You know, I'm thinking about the black-footed ferret. I do some golden eagle work on a ranch in Wyoming, and they have black-footed ferrets. And I have yet to see one, so I'm just taking their word that they're there. But it'd be really cool to see. And if you don't know the history of how we rediscovered, unextincted, I don't know what the word is there, the black-footed ferret. You really need to do some some search in there because it's a great story. And I think it's a great story for conservation. But what you're talking about with the connections between neighboring ranches and how that impacts other people, I think is really key. And those are conversations I continue to have with with landowners on, on this particular issue. And grizzly bears and, and wolves are a great example because they're they're taking up entire landscapes that will span multiple ranches, right? A black-footed ferret, pretty good chance they're not going to go too far on a 100,000-acre ranch, right? They might, but we'll see. And yet what you have if we go to the ESA level is, is taking things all the way up to 10. And okay, now there's all of this regulatory framework. There are all these checkpoints that we have to get to. And the end result is it's likely never going to change. And I think that's where so many people think about reforming the, the ESA. You know, grizzly bears are, are the current example. Wolves were the most recent example. There are others there where we have met the benchmarks and we surpass them. And yet due to whether it's Equal Access to Justice Act kind of, I don't want to say fraud, but abuse maybe, 
those kinds of things happen. And, and then we just get people who, you know, save the furry animals, who cares if they eat people in, you know, parks or whatever. And so there's, there's all this that kind of comes on the other side that has very little to do with restoring a population and putting them in concert with everybody else, including humans on that landscape. And so it makes me think, you know, the, the future of the ESA is, is dim, even though we've had some successes with it. Is that fair? Definitely. I'd say where we at PERC talk a lot about is what is the goal of the Endangered Species Act? Is it is it simply to prevent species from going extinct, in which case we're doing okay? Or is it actually to recover these species? Is it Should the Endangered Species Act listing be an emergency room of sorts, where we're able to clean them up um, and move off and resume kind of regular management? And one of the things that I, I think people don't often fully grasp is that just because a species is not on the Endangered Species Act list does not mean that it suddenly becomes open season on that species. We resume state management, which is, in my mind, the rightful place and the rightful way for for species to be managed. We return them to state management. And then we're able to have those more thoughtful, localized discussions on what about habitat? How do we involve some more of that cooperative conservation? How can state biologists and experts work at a local level with landowners, with sportsmen, with conservationists, with just general people who live in the area to actually build in some of those lasting cooperative solutions. Some of that might involve hunting. In other cases, it might not. There's times and places for all of these things. But when we're able to move the conversation to that level, that's the really important side of things. And and so oftentimes it it bothers me a little bit just how the ESA is is weaponized. Suddenly it becomes this tool of litigation. You see the headlines of, instead of celebrating the grizzly bear recovery, we're fearing that grizzly bears might lose protection. And so I really want to try and reframe even just the way we talk about these issues to celebrate recovery, to celebrate that cooperative conservation, to highlight the role that private lands have played in all of this and habitat restoration and all of these pieces so that we don't freak out when something might actually be recovered. We're we're celebrating it. We did a good job. We've worked together. We've gotten a lot of these things done. And reframing a little bit in that direction, I think could go a long way for just how we think about the act and the ways we use it. You know, Hannah, one of the things I've toyed with is having a anti-hunter on the podcast. And I've done a non-hunter, dinner with a non-hunter, and that one was a really good success. But I thought about bringing somebody on so that you can hear maybe the passion in their voice, but some of their stance and some of their perspective, because I think it's important, you know, Sun Tzu says, you know, know your enemy. Right. So I think it's important to, to understand that. But then on the other side, I'm like, I really don't want to give them any, you know, any moment of a plat part of my platform. Right. I don't want to, I don't want to give them anything there, but is it really, do you think that it's possible to win converts from the anti-hunting side of things, do you find that you have a persuasive argument sometimes that they kind of stop and listen for a moment? I think so. And I think one of the most important pieces there is how do we always start with conservation? How do we start the conversation talking about what is our goal? Where are we trying to get? And then how can hunting or active management or deregulation or incentives or cooperative conservation, all the things we've talked about today, how can those pieces 
move us towards that conservation goal. And I will say it's really interesting. One of the strongest kind of advocates for hunting as a management model, as a wildlife funding model, all of those pieces is a vegetarian friend of mine who looks at this and says, I don't hunt. I don't even eat meat, but I can recognize the role that the sportsmen play in the management of these species, in the funding of wildlife conservation. And those pieces, I think, are really important to hear from. So maybe it's it's less of a, an anti-hunter, but to your point, it's the dinner with the non-hunter. How can people start to recognize, even if it's not something that they partake in themselves, recognize the, the value um, contributed to broader conservation goals? What are the current wildlife management issues that you see that we could find more cooperative conservation opportunities? I know we've talked a lot about elk here in Montana. We're both here and we're dealing with elk all the time and will for a little bit longer for sure, probably forever, (laughs) but elk aren't going away. So it's really central. But for the rest of everybody's like, yeah, we don't have elk in in our state. Uh, You know, maybe it's sage grouse. Uh, really like the stories about butterfly conservation. That to me is really important because uh, there are a lot of sporting groups that, that have gone on board to help fund those things. And that's really cool because uh, unless you're really weird, you're not hunting a lot of butterflies, except I, being a Montana boy, I, I really appreciate things about our state. And we have a state butterfly called the morning cloak. And I spent more than a couple summer afternoons trying to find one so I could uh, collect a morning cloak. I hope they're not endangered. But that's my little story on, on butterfly hunting. Um, not for, for everybody, for sure. I'm getting off topic here because what I really want to ask you is, is Hannah, there are other wildlife, other areas where we could find cooperative conservation across the country. Do you think that that is growing in in interest from, from either state agencies or, or private landowners? I do think interest is is growing in those elements. And I think there's a few factors. There's definitely the groups who are really interested and invested in species conservation, be it the sage grouse, bobwhite quail, butterflies, all these other species. But there's also a really big interest from industries that are afraid that if a population dips too low, they are going to be regulated because of it. I think of like sage grouse, for example, and and I personally don't have a ton of work on the sage grouse, but thinking about why is it that in appropriations bills passed by Congress, there's always this huge fight, or at least in recent years, this big battle over a sage grouse rider that will, in effect, prevent the sage grouse from being listed as, as an endangered species or on the endangered species list. And it's largely because there's this fear that if the sage grouse is listed, we can shut down through regulation, we'd be shutting down agriculture, we'd be shutting down energy development, all of these different pieces. And so subsequently, you see suddenly energy developers are really interested in investing in sage grouse habitat, or developing plans or mitigation agreements um, to try and protect themselves from some of that regulation. So I think there's honestly a really interesting opportunity, even if motives might be a little bit different from all of the groups to at least come together and say, well, what can this actually mean for the conservation of wildlife? What are the ways that we can leverage whatever our interests are to put it together for the benefit of this wildlife and its habitat? So I think there's some really good opportunity there um, and hopefully some good chances where, again, you're seeing sporting groups, conservation groups, landowners come together. And I'm kind of a big advocate of you don't all have to agree on your motives, What matters is the outcomes. And so 
for me, that's that's a really big push and hopefully where I see some opportunity. I think that's a really great point. I, I don't know that I would put it as a blanket statement across everything in my life, but sometimes we can we can dismiss what the motive as long as what we're trying to achieve is the same. And, you know, corporations, they're there to make a dollar. And I get that. And that's the capitalistic way. And that's fine. I'm okay with that. It's not altruistic, right? It's not that they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart or they have a passion for the species or something like that. But if we can find that common ground, and and this for me, when I was thinking about cooperative conservation, there I, I kind of thought of like three main points. And the first one was relationships are key to this, right? And whether it's from a corporation, a landowner, or an NGO, state agency, or just sportsmen and, and people who are bird watchers or whatever in general, you have to have these stakeholders come together and find a way to achieve that same goal. But you also have to make sure that that goal aligns too, right? So it's that we're all saying the same thing to some extent. But that doesn't necessarily mean we have to do it for the same reasons. And and maybe the bird watcher does it because they just want to see a lek on a spring morning, right? And find the birds dancing. And, you know, Everett wants to go find a few sage grouse with, you know, his his falcon or something, or the the corporation does it because there's a an incentive to stay in business. And I think all of that's okay, right? So it, we don't find that though, unless we have those relationships. And and, and one of the questions, I, if we had time, I wanted to get to was to talk a little bit about corner crossing. Maybe we won't. Who knows? These relationships are key to everything. And whether it's on a small scale or a large scale, nothing gets done and nothing stays done unless these relationships are maintained. And I, I have found that through sportsman landowner relationships, they're really strained if they're even present at all. And, and I find that really disappointing. And so when I had Justin on, this was one of my ideas. And then when I heard you talking and I thought about this a little bit more, I was like, man, we should find a way to help people understand that cooperative conservation, that's really the only avenue that we have to ensure the future of wildlife conservation. If we don't have those relationships, then at some point, one or all of us are going to lose. I don't think you can overstate how important relationships and trust are in developing these solutions. And it's honestly, it's part of the reason why I'm really intrigued by um, these sort of localized or even private solutions is because I've now worked in this space for just long enough to appreciate the back and forth of politics and the controversial nature of politics and what one legislature does, the next can come in and undo. Or what one presidential administration comes in and does, the next can come in and undo. And it made me a little bit frustrated, a little bit, seeing this ping pong back and forth. And I realized, oh, well, this is how people get to be really, really great experts on the Endangered Species Act or hunting policy or whatever it might be. And it's because we've been having these same political battles for decades And it's a little bit frustrating to me. And so I love the approaches where it takes time to develop. Relationships are hard to build. Trust is hard to build. But once you have it, that's when you can really get some of these lasting, sustainable um, outcomes. Because you've had the different people, different backgrounds, different insights, different objectives, but you've got them all to come to the table and buy into an agreement. And that's when things are really long lasting. I think we've seen the best successes there and people are excited about it and willing to invest in it and come to the table. It's hard. Collaboratives are hard. It takes a lot of back and forth. I always say when I'm like meeting with new people where we might not always agree on something, I'll say up front, like, 
I promise we probably won't agree on everything, but I'm going to come to the table in good faith. And I'm going to proactively try and listen and share ideas in a way that starts with conservation. How can we start from some common ground and build from there? And that is hopefully where we're going a little bit with this because the political back and forth is is unsustainable in my mind. Absolutely agree with that idea. I think anything that the government touches does not turn to gold. Let's say it nicely like that, right? And and I think wildlife management, I mean, that's a key thing too. We, we would all love to see that give it back to the states and and done it in a way that is um, more focused on a local level and includes all these various stakeholders. I mean, in in your backyard in the Paradise Valley, which coincidentally, that's where Yellowstone is based off the TV show is Paradise Valley, just FYI. They have working groups for how they manage elk and they get these stakeholders together and talk about what are we dealing with? How can we deal with it together? What are approaches that we can suggest to the state wildlife agencies that might be new or novel and and more nuanced for what we have and what we need? Like you said, I mean, most of those elk are coming out of uh, Yellowstone Park and they're just there for the winter and then they're they're back in or back up into the mountains and and. And I don't, I don't know that uh, you can improve that public land good enough, well enough to hold those elk in the winter when there's 20 feet of snow up there, right? I mean, they're they're going to continue that winter migration, right? So there's there's things like that that you have to take into consideration. Whereas if you're in eastern Montana dealing with an elk problem, it's a little bit different. So finding those those little microcosms, I think, are so important. And sportsmen need to be a part of that, right? I think they need to be a part of that conversation. And yet so often they, they're just not present. They're not there. And that to me is, it's a little disappointing, but it also, it, it gives me a desire to, to put out this kind of clarion call that if, if we're doing something and, and like you said earlier, even if it's not a sportsman or wildlife management specifically related issue, there are issues that have a trickle down effect, right? That landowners are dealing with that we need to show up for a sportsman and kind of have a solidarity for. Definitely. I I think of a few areas of opportunity right off the bat, a few being like open space conservation. We can fight all day long about landowner tags or access agreements or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, I think there's great overlap to look at how do we conserve our open spaces? And that might be everything from conservation easement discussions, habitat leases, finding ways for um, working lands to remain financially viable and stay working. Um, There's also the conversation on public lands quality. How are we managing our forests actively? What can we be doing on water quality and quantity where, to your point, an elk migrating out of Yellowstone National Park down to the river valleys for the winter, we aren't going to disrupt that full migration cycle. But if there are some ways on the margins to interact with that, um, especially from a sportsman's perspective, where are the elk during hunting season? that can have a really big impact. Also predator dynamics. We touched a little bit on wolves, grizzlies. What does all of that mean for the viability of agricultural production? And also what does that mean for the movement of of game species? Or do we want to hunt predators too? All of these conversations need to be happening at a bigger level. And finally, the community dynamics. We've touched on this and kind of danced around this a lot, but are landowners and sportsmen meeting each other at the bar or having a cup of coffee or running into each other at a trailhead or whatever it might be, I think we are kind of seeing people starting to exist a little bit in their own silos or echo chambers where 
you only get newsletter for, from sportsmen or you only get newsletters from the stock growers or the cattlemen's association. And so we need a little bit more information sharing there. How can you humbly approach people instead of demanding access? How can you ask for access instead of just complaining about an elk problem? How can you start actively thinking through some solutions or ways to partner with sportsmen's groups and conservation community more broadly? So those are just a few of the areas where I would really love to see more work done, where it doesn't just have to be on hunting and access opportunity. We can be talking about a broader issue. Do you feel optimistic about the the outlook of being able to work together or find those cooperative solutions? There are moments I do, and there are moments I don't. And again, this will largely come down to who's being really vocal. And I think that's part of the challenge is kind of only either end of the spectrum can suck a lot of air out of the room and be really loud. I had a state legislator last year tell me, she wasn't really a hunter. She was, you know, her family hunted, but she was not aware of how big an issue like hunting tag allocations would be. And she said, never have I ever in my life as a state legislator gotten so many angry, fired up emails as over this bill that she was like, I didn't think anything of it. And suddenly I'm getting thousands of emails from people in the state and out of the state with really strong opinions on this. And so that's when I maybe feel a little bit discouraged is when we're seeing all of those form letters come in and really heated messages of like, pick up your pitchforks, we're going to the legislature, pick up your pitchforks, we're opposing this movement or whatever it is. That I don't love. But when you're able to find there's this whole reasonable middle ground on both sides, the landowner and sportsman side, that I think is doing some really, really good work. And I want to help elevate those voices to a point where we can highlight to legislators, decision makers, conservationists, people really implementing these tools on the ground. You have written a, a ton of articles and we're going to make sure to put your your professional link in here so people can go and they should, they should read your stuff. And, and I mean, you speak really well. You're right, I think, even better. And and you have some some topics that I think are really apropos to cooperative conservation, but also to just a general well well-roundedness for the sportsman who, if you've not been to Perk and been to the website, I mean it's real easy, right? PERC.org. So I'll put a link in there if you need it, but go to Perk, see what's going on. But can I do like some rapid fire with you? And maybe you just give me like the 22nd rundown. This is an issue. And this is maybe why sportsmen should be aware and and talk about this issue. You good with that? Yeah, shoot. Let's do it. All right. How about forest management? Oh, forest management. I think this is one of the biggest priorities, especially in the West. We're seeing a wildfire crisis. And we oftentimes hear about these fires burning bigger, longer, more expensive, devastating homes, communities, infrastructure. But it's also a conservation issue, right? Not only are we seeing carbon emissions, waterways polluted, wildlife habitat burning up. This is one, I think, one of the biggest areas of opportunity for the sportsman's community to get engaged, to highlight forest management is not just important for wildfires, it's important for our wildlife habitat. I totally agree. And we actually have some forest management plans being rewritten right now. They're taking public comments on. I will put a link in there, but I think that they have just passed. So don't quote me on that. How about feral horses? Is that an issue? Feral horses, one of my favorite topics. So uh, as we talked about at the beginning, I am an absolute horse lover. Grew up with the misty of Chincoteague spirit, like the romanticized vision of the, the American West and the Mustang galloping across grasslands. When you start looking into it, 
the reality is dire. We have anywhere from like four to much more than that times the number of horses that can appropriately be held on on the Western rangelands. Nevada is the hotbed for this. And these horses are absolutely decimating the rangelands, eating all of the forage, um, destroying watering holes, competing with native and endangered species for existence. So absolutely huge problem. Cost the taxpayers a ton of money. Horses, once they're sometimes pulled off the range, they're put in these holding facilities. It, it can get expensive. It's basically a question of what can we do. I'm a huge advocate of uh, wild horse adoption. That absolutely will not solve the problem, but is hopefully a way that we can start to, to stem some of this. But we do need to get the wild horse population under control. Can I do a follow-up? Please. What about, what about horse hunting seasons? This is a tricky one as a personal horse lover, Everett. So I'm going to give you a super biased answer on that. Okay. I, I don't know. I apologize. I'm blanking on the exact tribe, but one of the tribal nations down in Arizona did actually look at starting um, a horse hunting program on their reservation because they were absolutely overrun. It was, it was terrible. Ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, some horse advocacy groups and a few celebrity figures put forward a ton of money to the tribal nation to say, here, we'll try and finance some ideas outside of horse hunting to help alleviate your problem. So to my knowledge, nowhere in the U.S. has tried it yet, but that is the most recent example. You know, this is one where I don't feel like I have to, as a hunter, kill everything. Mm -hmm. But if there was a horse season, I would be right up there volunteering to go. Uh, I've had horse and and horses is eaten around the world Mm -hmm. uh, and I have no problems with it at all. But I just think about the management portion of it and like, especially like desert bighorns and, and, and animals that just really are hurting and people either don't know or frankly just don't give a care mm-hmm. about others. They just want to keep the, uh, the charismatic megafauna as they're called, right? They want to keep the eyelashes on the rain. I actually heard a woman speak at the NASC summit that you were also at from the Nevada Sierra Club advocating that we need to get rid of these horses. And that I think was really telling where suddenly you have someone from the state where this is a huge issue from the Sierra club, right? Not who I would traditionally think of as a move animals off, off the rangeland type group, but she was saying this is such an issue and it is such a challenge for our native species and biodiversity and rangeland ecosystem health that we absolutely need to get horses off the rangeland. I could probably talk quite a bit more about feral horses, not wild horses. I think that's a really good and key distinction to make. I have a, a podcast lined up for that one that I need to get recorded because it's it is it's an issue. And there's actually, I believe in Arizona right now, there's something going on in their legislative uh, session. And by the time this podcast airs, it's going to be over. So kind of a moot point, but needs to be on every sportsman's radar for sure. I got another one I wanted to ask you about. What about mine and resource extraction cleanup and why? why that might be something to be on a sportsman's radar. Oh, absolutely. Um, Abandoned mines are a huge pollutant in Western waterways. Some estimates are that up to like 40% of Western waterways have pollution from from these abandoned mines. And and it's really tricky because these mines, it's kind of from the history of how the West was settled. We had all these mines popping up and now decades later, we're seeing like leaching and and pollutants getting into the waterways. And I really have to actually applaud Trout Unlimited on this. They've done a huge push um, on, it's called Good Samaritan legislation. Basically, how can we allow uh, Good Samaritans, outside groups, Trout Unlimited, other conservation groups, even some, some mining groups to come in and be 
relieved from some of the liability and complications that come from mine cleanup to actually get in there, devote their own private resources and private efforts to get those mines cleaned up. The reality is there just aren't enough resources at, at a government level, and there's too much complication at a federal and government level to get a lot of this stuff done. So private groups want to be partners. I think we should absolutely let them step in and get that done. Man, that government thing again, right? Just getting in the way of everything. <laughs> and I will say, I mean, I don't want to assume malintent or anything, but the challenges you're trying to do, healthcare, education, defense, all of these things, it's really challenging to address all these issues. And so if you have groups like Trout Unlimited who say this is our like number one priority, let us go do good stuff and clean up our waterways for the fish that live in it, the wildlife that rely on it, the humans that recreate in it, absolutely. I agree. That good Samaritan aspect that needs to be emphasized. And if people took a look at just how many abandoned and polluting waterways and habitats there are out there from this stuff, it's, I mean, Pebble Mine gets all the attention, but man, there's so much more out there that, that people could just, if you knew what was there and, and how destructive it's been, mm-hmm. I think more people would be on board with the, uh, yeah, whoever wants to throw a dollar at this, please do. Cause we need it. Hannah, let's talk about corner crossing. Let's do it. You feel okay about that? I think so. I think corner crossing is such a trigger word these days, whether you're a sportsman or a landowner. And, you know, if you were at the Stock Growers Association annual conference and you said corner crossing, you might be as hated as like a vegetarian or something, right? And if you said it on the other side with, you know, at some kind of sportsman show or something, I think that there's there's an equal amount of passion and emotion and feeling going into that. Do you think we're going to find a cooperative solution to corner crossing? I really hope so. And this is challenging because unfortunately, the way that we're really seeing corner crossing play out and attempt to resolve the controversy over corner crossing is through litigation. And I really dislike that approach because it automatically pits two groups against each other. There's no room for cooperation. There's, by definition, a winner and a loser. And so there's no room for cooperation in that. And certainly I think there's bad actors. Do I think um, baiting litigation or trying to enforce the penalties that we're seeing um, play out in the Wyoming example are the right way to do it? (laughs) Absolutely not. I think there's much better ways to do it. I would be really encouraged to see in some of the conversations we're having, and I apologize, these aren't fully baked ideas yet, but trying to see what are ways that we can use existing access programs to really bring forward some of that partnership? What are the ways where we're recognizing, hey, there are private interests here and there are public interests here. How can we compensate for some of that? Um, And I also got to give a shout out. Like, I think some of the landowners are doing actually really good stuff here. I was out um, looking for spring bear this, this spring with my husband and we were in an area and came across a corner crossed or a cornered area. And the landowner had built like a ladder up and over the corner so that we were able to do it. And I took pictures of it and I loved it. And I wish I knew who the landowner was so I could send them, give them a call and say, thank you. Like, I just, I just love this approach. So I think maybe there are some really innovative ideas there where could we use land and water conservation fund dollars pretty creatively to try and unlock some of these areas? Are there streamlined land exchange proposals, um, you know, narrowly applied that could promote some of 
unlocking these corner crossed areas or, or these checkerboarded areas. So those are some of the areas where I'm like, I would love for us to look beyond litigation. It's going to require getting creative with existing programs. Um, it's going to require in some cases probably changing uh, the federal appraisal process for how funding can be used and applied in some of these access situations. But hopefully those are the sorts of approaches I would like to see looked at rather than winner takes all, loser goes home litigation approaches. Well, that's exactly why I asked this question. You know, we're talking about cooperative conservation and finding relationships and finding bridges that we can build together that we we don't have to have a winner loser approach to this that we can find. I, I loved your idea of using access programs. We have one in Montana called the PAL Act where we could just lease a corner and pay a landowner for access through there. And, and do whatever amount is necessary for that. We have that program in place right now. Uh, and I think that there's such a trepidation from, from landowners to do that because the other side is a giant stick being waved at them through, through these, uh, these court cases. You know, the one in Wyoming is the big uh, lightning rod right now. We're all waiting to see what's going to happen there and at a federal level. And then what's going to happen, you know, here in Montana based on that. And, yeah, the idea that there's going to be a winner and a loser really sets sets people off and, and makes them really, really reticent to work together. But if we don't talk about it, nothing ever changes, right? And and so that's really where I begin to have these conversations with, with both sportsmen and landowners where we need to talk about what are the concerns, what are the ways that we can mitigate those concerns, and ultimately, how can we find ways that we can both compromise and, and find solutions? If we don't do that, what is going to continue to happen is a degradation of relationships, possibly loss of current access programs. I mean, we have millions of acres in Montana. We have millions of acres across all the states in the West and others in, in, on the East Coast where, where landowners open up their private land and, and give us access to hunt. I don't want to lose that for the sake of being able to say, well, I can cross any corner I want now. I want to find ways that we can can talk about these in a safe spot and, you know, on the the Private Lands Public Wildlife Council, Montana, that's one of the things I, I've proposed that we talk about this next year. And I don't know that we're going to find a, a golden you know, nugget or the, the silver bullet or whatever it is that, that solves everybody's problems. But I do think it's really important that we talk about it. And, and if we get to the point where there's just nothing there, then that's where we get, right? But if we're going to find cooperative solutions and, and find cooperative conservation, we've got to be willing to discuss these hard things. And, and so I'm really glad to hear you say what you just said and, and find those those solutions together. Definitely. It will be challenging, right? Both sides, both sides can dig in their heels on this and, and what they want. So I think ultimately there will have to be some solid compromise or some realization that both sides are going to have to give a little to get a little. But the threat of litigation and to your point, waving a big stick, that's only going to drive people further apart. That's going to put a wedge where people are unwilling to come to the table and say, all right, I'm trusting the sportsman or recreational access community to operate in good faith on the same side. How can we get the landowners or thinking about working with the landowners in good faith and having them come to the table it raises just a lot of questions about what is access. If you have to hike for miles away, is that access? If you have to take a helicopter in, is that access? How are private landowners who own the private property surrounding these checkerboarded spaces, how are they using this 
public resource um, as they're the ones who are able to privately access it. So there's a lot of these questions, but you're totally right. Driving a wedge between people is not going to be the solution. I also want to say that the experiences I've had across every state I've ever hunted with landowners has been overwhelmingly high 90s percentage positive, right? Sometimes I get told no, but I, I don't even know that I can remember a time I had a door slammed in my face or a no said to me with certain expletives attached to it, right? It's never happened to me. I, I meet landowners um, all the time and they are they're incredibly giving and generous people when they can. And sometimes they can't be for whatever reason. And, and, you know, you say, okay, thank you. And you move on. And so I have always said that I think that the relationships are so important and, and that's the way that we're going to find that lasting success. Right. I would love to see more of that type of approach from sportsman groups that, that recognize um, the, the value there from what they're doing as stewards and providers of wildlife habitat, but also just as people, right? And I think that that gets missed a lot. That's just my plug for the good-hearted nature uh, of the rancher that you're driving by down the road. Most of the time, man, they, if you bought them a beer, they say thank you and buy you one in return, right? That's just how they are. And so I, I hope that we're able to find solutions to corner crossing. Absolutely. And I hope I hope it can go both ways too, right? Like I hope there are the landowners who can realize, for example, hunting block management areas in Montana where it's private landowners who do open up their property for public hunting access. I hope the landowners do also recognize some of the self-policing that goes on or the cleaning up garbage um, or just the camaraderie that is that is had there. And so Again, I just don't want us to lose the bigger picture for the sake of a few bad examples, but it's going to require a lot of work to ensure that the the broader good is highlighted. Hannah, we touched on uh, a lot of different topics today. Did we miss one? I don't think so. We really uh, ran through it all. All right. Well, I love giving my guests the, the final word. So I just want to say, again, thanks for being here. Good luck this fall with you and your husband, Jason Mule Deer, and having disagreements over dinner. Uh, I hope that when the next year rolls around and we come back and we revisit some things that you have some stories. Thanks again for being here. Floor is yours. Thank you so much, Everett, for having me and for ultimately creating a a space where these conversations can happen and really trying to elevate the conversation where we can start to get into what are what are the opportunities? What what's the good that's happening? How can we really seek to elevate and highlight the cooperative conservation opportunities so that as a, as a community, as sportsmen, as landowners, as conservationists, um, as just citizens of the West who care about these issues, that we can find really good ways to move forward and put in the hard work to build that trust, to build those local solutions and make things happen. Well, all my friends have gone away. They say I did the walking. What can I say? I did the walking. They used to walk beside me. They turned to something beside me. They turned away. But I keep walking on. They say I did the walking. And now they say I'm gone.